Lord, already within this service, we have been nourished through the supper of our Lord. We have been strengthened by singing theological truths to one another. And also, Lord, we have prayed to you through the living word. Now feed us, Lord, through your word. We pray, Lord, you would be gracious to us to open up our eyes to see ourselves as we truly are and to see the Lord Jesus as he truly is. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, the last time that we were together, we left our ancestors, Adam and Eve, in an ideal environment. Everything was fresh and new in creation. Mankind had been created in the image of God and given dominion over the earth. Adam had been placed in a beautiful garden and given purpose in life to work it and expand the beauty beyond the borders of Eden. He had been given a perfect companion to assist him in this. Adam and Eve were naked and completely vulnerable before the other in absolute trust. There was no shame for no offense had yet occurred. They were given absolute freedom to follow the dictates of their sinless hearts. The situation on earth was perfect in every way for the man and for the woman. And then we arrive at chapter 3, and everything changes rapidly. Now, in order to understand chapter 3, we need to go back to chapter 2. Now, I have been fond of saying that the Lord gave only one single command to Adam and Eve. I'm realizing as I think about it, that's not necessarily true. We see they had specific orders from God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These were obvious actions that would bring continuous blessings upon the man and the woman in their role as vice regents over the earth. Obviously, these were commands that would be a pleasure to obey within a sinless environment, probably done without consciously thinking of them as they brought joy in fulfilling their purpose. So while they had these commands to obey, they were given only one single prohibition. And we read of it here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now we see here, and earlier in chapter, uh, in chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, that they had access to every edible plant on the earth. This includes the tree of life that's mentioned at chapter 2, verse 8, alongside the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There was only one thing in all the earth that was denied them. As I said a few weeks ago, Andrew Bonar called this tree a monument to God's sovereignty. The commentator, Victor Hamilton, rightly points out that this tree is a test. What is forbidden to man is the power to decide for himself what is in his best interest or what is not. Will the man trust that God has determined is always good Or will he take matters into his own hands and disobey by rebelling against the Lord God? As a measure of goodness, a good law or a good command spells out the consequence of disobedience. And that is what happens here. If Adam violates this one rule, it will bring about a death sentence. Now we'll learn a little bit later what this means in a bit, but we should take note 
that again, this is one of those places where the indeterminate amount of time is meant like we had in verse 4. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The consequences would be immediate, but it does not mean the finality of death. A succession of all life would occur in a single moment. There is more to this consequence than the absence of breath. This disobedience would bring about a death sentence, condemnation for sin. I doubt the first humans could imagine what they were about to unleash upon the earth. Obviously, with a name like tree of knowledge of good and evil, they knew it would be bad. The warning was sufficient that initially made them fearful to disobey. Chapter 3 occurs in four movements here. We have the act of rebellion, we have the discovery of it, the consequences from it, and the state of humanity after the fall. That's going to form our outline this morning. The act of rebellion, the discovery of the rebellion, the consequences of the rebellion, and humanity's state. And I'd be remiss if I did not at least take a moment at the end to speak on the reconciliation of the rebellion. So let's start at chapter 3 and see how all of this transpired. In the first verse, we're introduced to another sentient being, the serpent. And we are told he is more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now, the word in Hebrew for crafty, aram, is a bit of wordplay on Genesis 2.25, the verse that immediately precedes this one. It sounds like the Hebrew word for naked, aram. This serpent is about to prey upon the vulnerability of the humans. We can also assume that the serpent's intended original state was to have legs since it's associated with the beast of the field. Later, it's going to be condemned to crawl on its belly. But who is the serpent, and where did this new being come from? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, that he is the devil or the slanderer. He is a murderer who seeks to destroy humanity, and he is the father of lies or the source of all untruthfulness. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, Paul calls this being Satan, the celestial being who opposes God in the story of Job. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, John uses both terms of the ancient serpent, devil, and Satan. So this is no ordinary beast of the field. This is a spiritual being as well. As to his origin, we know that all beings were created by God. He is in no way equal to God, as though his yin equals his yang. But as to his revolt against God, and when exactly that occurred, we can only speculate. But just as Jesus identified him, we can see those attributes at work here. This being seeks to destroy the man and woman by bringing about their death through his lies. This we're certain of. He is the enemy of both God and mankind. He is never their friend. The serpent appeals to the woman first, not to her so-called protector. We pointed out last week that Adam was given this command not to eat from this specific tree before Eve came into existence. It was his job to protect the earth from death by obedience to this single command here. And we might ask, where was Adam when this occurred? Well, there's no reason to doubt the validity of verse 6, that he was present as this conversation was happening. He too must have been intrigued by the power that Satan is describing here. Adam does not intercede to protect Eve, but instead joins her. While she might have taken the first bite, Adam is just as culpable here. 
But note the serpent's words. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He draws attention to what Eve doesn't have rather than to all that she does have access to. And her response is most likely the rule that Adam had taught her. He taught her truth. Eat of this single tree and we bring on death. And possibly as his right to exercise dominion prior to sin entering into the world and his loyalty to the Lord God, he added the words, don't even touch it. As vice regent, he would have been within his prerogative to do this. And here is the lie that the devil tells in verse 4. You will not surely die. That is a bold-faced lie. We will see this is precisely what will happen after they eat the fruit. Satan claims to know God's mind better than the man. And he asserts a mixture of truth next in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is true. They will know what evil is after they rebel. But the serpent claims there will be no consequences but rather blessings. They will be on par with God, like God, as the text says specifically. And if being created in the Lord's image was not enough, they needed to reach for more. This is the ultimate sin. And one, ever since this moment, every single one of us have been guilty of. We trade truth for a lie, believing that we know what is better for our lives than our Creator. We want to be the ones to determine in our own eyes what we think is good. And the truth should be plain to us. Every time we call what is evil good and what is good evil, we increase the penalty of death in the world. We always make matters worse. That is the wrath that is upon us now before the final judgment. We continue to increase sin in the world to the point that we have others joining along with us, approving of our rebellion. Not a single one of us has ever trusted our Creator completely. This is why theologians call sin absolute. Every part of our being is corrupt and totally depraved because we continue to assert ourselves over God. We believe the lie that we know what's best for ourselves over God. Despite day after day, year after year, century after century, the proof is there. We have not eliminated greed. We've not eliminated exploitation or selfishness. We've not eliminated racism or prejudice or arrogance or corruption or murder or lying or gossip or unfaithfulness to one another. And especially, we do not love God with all our hearts, souls, and minds that is due to our Creator. Death still reigns because we will not give our glory to another. Every word that comes from God proves true, and yet we still think we know better. That is the choice that Adam and Eve make here. They choose the lie rather than the truth, and they eat of the forbidden fruit. And the consequences are immediate. There is an instant change in how they relate to their environment. It says that their eyes were opened, no doubt to the reality of the moment that everything has changed after their act of sin. And instead of viewing one another without shame, immediately there is shame. And they make garments from leaves to cover their nakedness. Now there is inhibition between them. 
a new type of separation. But even worse, we see that same inhibition extends to God as well as to one another. God appears in verse 8, and instead of running to him and enjoying his presence, they hide in a fear of discovery of the moment. Now, we know there is no place where we can escape the sight of God. In Psalm 139, David declared, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is no hiding from God as his presence is everywhere. And what is about to occur in the story next is not because of an absence of knowledge on the part of God. The Lord was perfectly aware of what had transpired. He knows exactly where Adam and Eve are. The fact that he appears in such a moment is an act of grace. After all, with the word, he could have just destroyed it all, or he could have removed knowledge of himself from the man and the woman forever and left them to themselves. But they are now lost, and God comes looking for them. It will become the story of every single Christian, right? Glenn played it during the Lord's Supper. I once was lost, but now I am found. Instead of deserting them, God asks them questions. And in each question, he gives them the opportunity to repent. Where are you, Adam? Seeking to be away from you, God, hiding. And the man states why. Adam is afraid of God. Now, like the relationship with the woman, his relationship with God is broken. It's now motivated by fear rather than by faith and trust in the Lord. Adam is ashamed because he is naked. This should not have been a moment of shame before his creator. God fashioned him. He knew what Adam looked like. But the recognition he was now vulnerable before a holy God inspires fear. So God asked in verse 11, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Here is an opportunity to confess what he has done. But in sinful human pride, Adam deflects here. The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It's Eve's fault, God. And really, you are responsible. You're the one who put her with me. Never mind the fact that Adam was supposed to protect her. And now God directs the question to Eve. And she blames the serpent for her behavior. It's the old story, the devil made me do it. She really believes that she was fooled. Possibly the insinuation is also, Adam didn't protect me here in this moment. But there is no excuse Both of them had sufficient knowledge to make an informed choice. They chose the lie. And this will be the state of every single human being from now on. We will deliberately choose the lie rather than trust God implicitly. And now a perfectly just and holy God must distribute the consequences. We should remember at this point in the story, the man and the woman had a concept of death as a mental construct, but not an experiential one. They knew it was a bad thing and something to be avoided, but now they are introduced to its overall consequence. They will discover that death is not just the cessation of life, it is a curse, and it will affect everything, everything on the earth 
will be cursed. First, there is consequence for the serpent. He will now have to crawl upon his belly and be forced to the ground as an act of humiliation. Uh, This crawling on the ground is a common description of humiliation in the Bible. Psalm 44, verse 25. For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Psalm 72, 9. Uh, May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Micah 7, 17, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. Satan may have wanted the heights of heavenly glory, but he only gets the dust of the ground. But more than that, There will be constant spiritual warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. They will always be in conflict with one another until the seed of the woman crushes the serpent's head. Now, this is an unusual reference here that the Lord God specifies seed of the woman and not seed of the man. Some refer to this as the proto-evangelium a specific reference to the virgin birth. Now, I'm not sure the average Jewish reader would have understood it that way, but more important is the eventual outcome. This enmity between the serpent and the offspring of the woman will be ongoing, but eventually it will end. At some point, the offspring will crush the head of the serpent and put an end to the conflict. But for now, there will be conflict spiritually upon the earth. Whatever rebellion Satan was sowing in heaven will now spread to the earth. But at some point, that rebellion will be crushed. Mankind will have to suffer the consequences until then. Next, the curse extends to the woman. Childbirth was the special privilege given to the woman. It was her unique gift. As her gender allows her to carry and develop a baby in her womb, what was once meant to be a pleasant process, perhaps with just uh, some minor discomfort, will now be incredibly painful. Now every human life brought into the world will be done so in toil. While I have never had the experience of essentially passing something the size of a watermelon through an orifice of my body, I have held the hand of someone who has. And I still have the scars of the fingernails that dug into that hand to prove that it was a painful process for both of us, but admittedly not on the same scale for me. But don't lose sight of the fact that in His grace, God intended the life cycle to continue. The man and the woman were to continue the mission to be fruitful and multiply. The curse ushers death into the world, but life is to continue. However, the curse will affect every single life brought into the world, including the Lord Jesus. But this is not the only consequence. We saw earlier that the man was given the responsibility of being the spiritual authority over the woman. He was given the privilege to protect her through the obedience of God's commands. And we pointed out last week in a sinless environment, there would be no suspicion of this authority. She would accept his dominion knowing that he always held her best interest at his heart. But now that trust has been broken. 
And the second part of verse 16 says, the woman's desire shall be for her husband. The word translated as desire is the same word that's used in chapter 4, verse 7, when God warns Cain that sin is crouching at his door and its desire is for you. In context, this desire is to consume or to dominate. What was once meant to be a relationship of one flesh has now changed. Now the woman will have mistrust over her husband. She will seek to be the ruler or the one of authority over the man. She will no longer have the peace of his authority. This will be a constant battle until the true, sinless, caregiving authority Jesus arrives where his bride, the church, will trust him implicitly once again. And of course, Adam is not exempt from the consequences of sin. Five times in the text, the word eat is used in verses 17 through 19. That was the transgression. He of all people knew this was his primary responsibility. Adam had one rule. And the first thing pointed out is that Adam did not assert his role as protector. Rather, he listened to the woman. He chose the created thing rather than the creator. God points him back to his culpability and his responsibility. Now the ground that he had relationship with, that from which he was created, is now cursed. And his job as gardener will no longer be pleasant, but a task, a toil. But in addition, it is the ultimate sentence of death. Instead of eternal life in the garden, man will now die and return to the dust of the ground, just as God foretold before they ate of the tree. There will be a finality to the matter for all of mankind. Now, like I've been saying, the consequences of death are further than just reaching here a succession of life. When we look back at the creation mandate, Everything that God gave the man and the woman to do, all of it was meant to bring pleasure and joy for his glory. The task still must be done, but now the process is broken. It is cursed. The being fruitful and multiplying and filling will be a painful process for the woman in childbirth. The ground is now cursed and seeking to subdue and exert dominion over the earth. And now the helper and the companion will have to work alongside the man here with a spirit of tension among them. And the spiritual forces of darkness are against the man as well, seeking to make his life miserable. There was an awful price to pay for one bite of fruit. We next read that it extends to the animal kingdom as well. Animals are slaughtered due to man's sin so that garments might be made to cover their nakedness. It foreshadows that something has to die in order to cover the consequences of sin. But there is also hope here in these last few verses. Eve is named. In Hebrew, the name sounds like life giver. Life will continue despite death being introduced into the world. God will still be sovereign. Satan will not win the day and ruin the Lord's creation. The Lord God will still reign, but he will do so by redeeming what was once lost. But the greatest consequence is introduced next. Adam is banished from the Garden of Eden. He is banished from the life-giving tree that would have extended him eternal life. And he is banished from the presence of God within the garden. That uninhibited access is now denied both the man and the woman. 
to emphasize this, cherubim are placed outside the garden entrance with flaming swords. This is the only time that cherubim are used to enforce a police action. Adam and Eve would look at the garden and know they are no longer allowed inside its sanctum. They and their offspring are no longer allowed to dwell with their God with complete access. Wow. So we may ask, was what they did really all that bad? I mean, all they did was was eat a piece of fruit. Would any of us ban our children from our household because they ate a cookie that we told them not to eat? I dare say not. But this was not about fruit. It was about authority. Who was in control? Who would serve who? And it's the same choice for us today. Adam and Eve chose to make themselves equal with God. God placed them in in an ideal environment. They would never lack food, no need for clothing, no need for protection from the elements or even one another. They had prestige and they had purpose on the earth, and yet they still chose their own way. They thought they had the knowledge and the power to control their own destinies. And that is what each of us continue to do. The problem with our society is not outside of us, as though if we just supply an ideal condition for everyone, all will be well. The problem is the sin that is inside of each of us. The prophetess Taylor Swift is not wrong. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Which of us would ever say we wanted to live our lives purely for God and not for ourselves? This is not about a cookie or a piece of fruit. It's about control. And Lord willing, we'll see next week in chapter 4 just how bad the contamination of taking control of our own lives can be. And if we're still to ask, is it really that bad? Then all we need to do is look at our means of being reconciled to God. There is no act of contrition that any one of us could do to atone for sin. We are cursed. We are corrupt. Anything we touch, we taint. Therefore, we need a Savior outside of ourselves. We need one to deal with our sin, who is without sin, and to go before us to offer a perfect and right acceptable sacrifice to appease a holy God whom we have greatly offended. And that is precisely what God in his mercy has done for us. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. This is found on page 941 of your pew Bible. And as you're turning there, let me just encourage you this afternoon to read the first two chapters of Paul's letters. It really is a running commentary on Genesis chapters 1 through 3 from a Judeo-Christian perspective. His inspired point in these chapters is, like Adam and Eve, each of us have rebelled against God by trading the truth for a lie and choosing the created things over our Creator. Even though there is a moral law that's written in our hearts that we should be drawn to do right over wrong, we still desire to sin. And even when we do good works, they are still tainted by our sin as we are motivated to do them apart from the glory of God. Therefore, every single one of us is guilty. 
whether like the Jew, we had a perfect knowledge of the holiness of God through the law, or the Gentile who only has the moral law on his heart. Jew or Gentile alike, we are guilty. We cannot save ourselves through obedience to the law. We can't just clean up our act. We need something outside of obedience to the law that can cover us. So is there any hope? Well, here's what Paul offers in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been made manifested apart from the law. Read that line again and praise God for it. I should hear an amen or a hallelujah or a praise God from every person in this room, saved or unsaved. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Thank you. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, and here it is. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all, meaning Jew and Gentile alike, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus did something to redeem us from the curse. He did something to make us acceptable to a holy God. And here is what He did, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Let me explain that. Propitiation is a legal term. It's the satisfaction of a debt to justice. So, for example, if I speed out of the parking lot this morning, Officer Nate might write me a ticket. I owe the court a fine to atone for my crime. That fine is my propitiation to the court. So when we ask, is our sin really that bad? Look at what it costs to satisfy the sin debt whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Sin is so heinous before a holy God, it costs the blood of his perfect and only son to atone for it. And here's how one receives it. To be received by faith. You want to be saved from death, from the wrath of God? Here is how. Believe that Jesus saved you at the cross. That's it. It means renouncing that you can save yourself any other way. Not our good works, not your pious feelings, not ignoring that there is a sin debt to be paid, but simply believing it is out of your control and that only Christ and his mercy can save you. But there is more grace here. Remember at the end of chapter 3 when I said life goes on, it's cursed, but it continues. God, why not just go ahead and end the suffering at that point? Why not just wipe out the man and woman and start over again? Why wait this long to end it all? Because for now we are living under the divine testimony of a promise. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Every life that comes into existence until the Lord returns will be a divine testimony. 
It will be one of either God's absolute justice in punishing sin or his absolute mercy through atonement by his son Jesus. God is the one who is always just, either through his wrath or justifying through the one who has faith in Christ. I'm often asked, well, well, Blair, what if I'm not of the elect? What if God has chosen not to justify me? Wrong question. And really not even all that relevant in such a matter. The question I would ask you instead, what think ye of Christ? What do you think of Christ? We just read that one is justified only by faith in Jesus. So what do you believe about Jesus? Do you still think you know better than him? That somehow you can save yourself apart from him or in some combination with him? Or have you come to an end of yourself? Is he Lord? Is he the one who knows what is best for you? Is he the one that can save your soul? Don't worry about whether or not you are of the elect. What do you think of Christ? What do you think he is doing for you right now? That is the question you must answer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what we have brought upon ourselves. We are so guilty of sin. Lord, if every person is true to themselves in this room, they know they have been a conduit of sin in this world. They know they have rebelled. They know they have disobeyed. Either knowingly or unknowingly, we have spread evil into this world. Whether it's through a so-called white lie or voting for an unjust law. Lord, we are all guilty. All of us. And yet, you did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us to face the consequences of our own. Instead, you provided us with a way out. You provided us not only just an escape from death, but a means by which we could be in right relationship with you once again, that we can walk in the garden uninhibited and run to you joyously, knowing that no sin separates us from you. You have done that by giving up your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. That Christ laid down his life as a propitiation for our sin. And you have made it so simple that all we have to do is believe in that. That we just trust that Christ has paid it all. That before the throne above stands our strong and our perfect plea, Christ Jesus has atoned for our sin. Oh Lord, may we just walk out of this room with the weight and the burden of sin off of our shoulders, knowing that we stand before you in the righteousness of Christ, that we stand in his robes and not our own, that we know that you have done this out of a great act of love for us, and may we question in awe, and can it be that thou, my God, 
would die for me. Lord, if we don't walk out of this room feeling incredible love, incredible feelings of worship towards you, it is on our own head because you have done something great and marvelous for us. So allow us this morning to taste the beauty of who you are. And we pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning is hymn 187, Before the Throne of God.